uh, April greetings and welcome to the Asian American and Asian Research Institute's final lecture series, Hybrid Edition. Uh, I'm Anthony Wong, Program Coordinator of, this, of the Institute. Thank you for joining us here and online uh, for tonight's book talk on Here to Stay, Uncovering South Asian American History with Kitika Rudra. Uh, Here to Stay, newly published by Rutgers University Press just last month, a couple of weeks ago, uh, takes readers on a journey across the U.S. Uh, to unearth the little-known histories of earlier generations of South Asian Americans. Gitika Rudra is an amateur history buff with a deep love of American history. Uh, the daughter of Indian immigrants from Queens, New York, she currently lives in Manhattan with her book collection. Uh, Gitika holds degrees from Columbia Journalism School and Columbia College, where she earned her MS and BA. Uh, she was a reporter for ABC News, a board member of the South Asian American Journalism Association, and worked on multiple early stage startups at the intersection of technology and media. Uh, she currently works at Chief a female-founded startup increasing the diversity of executive boardrooms. Uh, Here to Stay, Uncovering South Asian American History is her very first book, and Laborist Journey, which she'll talk about. Uh, you can find Kitika on Instagram or Twitter at G-G-G-E-E-T-I-K-A. Uh, please welcome Kitika Rudra. Um, thank you, Nancy. That was a great introduction. Um, hi there. My name is Irika. Thank you so much for attending tonight. And thank you to CUNY for hosting. I wrote a book called Here to Stay, which I'm going to talk to you about. Um, it's, I'm, I'm supposed to plug it. So if, if, you, if, you, if you're willing or if you can, um, you can order it on Barnes and Noble, on Amazon, but really what you should do is go to Rutgers Press and order directly from their site and happy to share a author's discount code if anyone is interested, um, just feel free to message me. But today's talk is going to be basically about two things. It's gonna be about my journey to uncovering what ended up being a really you know, rich but also complicated history of South Asian Americans in the United States. Um, I'll talk about sort of, you know, what really compelled me to do to do this book, um, as well as share, you know, the history that I learned. Um, so our story begins in Queens. I know we have some people from Queens in the audience tonight, so shout out to Queens. Um, like Nancy said, my parents had immigrated here from India in the early 1980s. And we lived in an immigrant neighborhood um, in Woodhaven and later Richmond Hill in Queens. Um, it was very diverse. This very cute baby that you see here was me. So come for the history, stay for the babies. And I always loved American history. There was something about it. I think there was something about, you know, living in an immigrant household in New York City where the promise of the United States was just so powerful. And every day I would hear my parents sort of, you know, talk about their experiences trying to build a life for themselves in a new country where there was just way more opportunity um, with the hope of having, you know, a better life for myself and my younger brother. And so there was a lot of, you know, like optimism, um, I think, in our household. And American history for me was a way of really connecting with this country that I was, you know, born, that I was born in, but also, you know, really was made to feel a very deep connection with, right? So like growing up, I was taught that, you know, America, America is exceptional, right? Like we have a history where, you know, people who are not free or, or who, you know, had issues or, you know, you know problems where, where they were from, 
um, could come and like kind of like start anew, like and start start a life where there was more opportunity. And so in reading about American history, this is really my way, I think, of like tapping into that spirit, that ethos of like what makes us all American, which is this like, I think, promise for a better life. But it didn't really escape me that when, you know, looking at these figures of American history, so reading about the founding fathers, reading about Betsy Ross, reading about the civil rights movement, there were certainly, you know, women in the pages of my books, but there was very few people of color. And there was even like less, like, you know, like brown women. I don't want to speak in like, you know, um, in, you know, universality here, but I really can't remember ever in any of my history books seeing a photo or reading about a person who looks like me. And this impacted me, I think. Like, I think it wasn't until I was older when I really started, you know, going out in the world and really thinking about, you know, I love this country so much, but what does it mean that, you know, the people who come before me look very different than me? Like, how do I belong? Like, what is my sort of role here? This all sort of became much complicated when I became a reporter um, in 2014. I was covering the Trayvon Martin case in, um, for ABC. And as I'm sure everyone on, you know, tonight here is aware, it was a very like racially sad and charged moment in our history, in our country's history. And as a brown woman, I was often sort of found myself second guessing, like, where do I fit in this racial dialogue that is, you know, quite binary. There were people, you know, if you're either white or you're black, um, how does someone who is Indian or whose parents are from India fit into this conversation? And so that's sort of what sparked this like intellectual curiosity that, made me go into kind of the annals of like American like legal history, racial history, anything that I can kind of find to see, you know, okay, so how like were there actually like ever any 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 people who were brown or South Asian in American history? And if so, like, do they have the same racial, you know, questions that I was having? And I think really, you know, at the heart of that was the sort of like very lingering feeling I've had ever since I was a kid, which was kind of like not really accepting that the American history that I was taught was the only history or the only available history. And so that's sort of how this book began. It began as a very personal journey, I think, for me, trying to sort of like see where I fit in this country, in this country's racial dialogue, and really just hoping that like, you know, this girl here could like see someone who looked like her um, and be represented and feel that she, you know, not to be trite, like literally like is here to stay. And so it was one day where I was, you know, at the ABC newsroom on the Upper West Side here in New York City, that I discovered this man. So what you're looking at is a photograph um, of four men. And I want to direct your attention to the guy who is on the right hand side in the middle. He's wearing that, he's wearing a almost large, like white cowboy hat. His name is Akoy Kumar Majumdar, and he came to the United States in 1911. And I was literally like online, I was just Googling South Asian American history. I was Googling South, South Asian American voting history. And I found this man, AK Majumdar. And literally my heart stopped. It stopped for two reasons. So if anyone's familiar with like Indian ethnicity or different like ethnic cultures, Majumdar is a very popular last name in an area of India called Bengal. And that's where my dad is from. And so immediately I felt a, like sort of like kinship to this person. 
And the fact that he'd come here in 1911 sort of stopped me in my tracks. Up until now, I had sort of assumed that again, there were no, you know, brown South Asians in American history. We as an immigrant group had started coming here in the 60s. So it made sense that there would be no, you know, South Asian Americans in my history books. But here was someone right before me who had come in 1911. And as soon as I sort of, you know, discovered him and his story, I couldn't stop. And I discovered through his experience a very crucial piece of American history, I think that is like grossly underreported, not talked about enough, which is that between the years 1790 and 1952, an immigrant had to be legally considered white in order for them to naturalize. And I realized this because the reason why Akhoi Kumar Majumdar was coming up in my Google searches was because he had had he had to sue the United States government for the right to become a citizen after he immigrated here. A.K. Majumdar was a very interesting guy. He, um, you know, very much had a spiritual background. I like to think he was almost the Deepak Chopra of his day. He was very charismatic, but also a very, you know, I think shrewd business person. And he, he ultimately accrued a lot of wealth in California where he lived. And at the time, property rights, so the ability to own property was tied to citizenship. So you had to be a citizen in order to purchase um, land. And so that's what then got him to actually be a citizen or to actually apply to be a citizen. But his petition wasn't an ordinary petition. He sued the government because when he submitted his, his petition, he immediately was given a no. Why? Because phenotypically he wasn't white. The other requirements he met, he was technically free, right? He'd never been enslaved. Um, he wasn't the descendant of um, an enslaved person either. He was of good moral standing, which was an entirely subjective you know, quality that the district clerk who processed his case had to assess, but he literally was brown. And on that basis, he lost his, he, he didn't get citizenship. But he countersued, and he actually ended up making, I think today, what we would consider a very incorrect, scientifically incorrect argument, that he was considered white. Um, and he did so by saying that people from South Asia were actually, you know, the descendants of Caucasians, who were people from the Caucasus Mountains, literally in Europe. And by making that argument, um, he convinced a judge that he, even though he phenotypically wasn't white, even though he, you know, he didn't look white, he was technically or scientifically white. And this case was really interesting because it, you know, really brings to light kind of like the fallacy, right, of whiteness as a, as an indicator of anything really. But also it really just shows, I think, how entrenched whiteness is in our country. And when we talk about like institutionalized racism, when we talk about like the systems that have been put into place for ages that really, you know, keep certain people away from other opportunities, like this is a very literal um, example of that. Before Majumdar, every single immigrant who came to this country had to be considered legally white. And when I learned about this, I was also floored because it's very contrary to, I think, the spirit of immigration that we're taught about in schools, right? This country is a country for everyone. Anyone can come here regardless of, you know, race, religion, creed. Um, when, growing up in New York City, we took many field trips to Ellis Island, where literally this idea that this country is a country of immigrants was, you know, really, I think, like, just, like, inculcated in our minds. 
And now as a person of color and, and, and the daughter of South Asian immigrants, it really floored me that, you know, had my parents, had my grandparents come here or their grandparents come here, they wouldn't have been able to be a citizen until they came to Jumdar Brach's case. So in 1913, Akoi Kumar Majumdar becomes a citizen. Is everything great? No. So for a period of 10 years, South Asians were basically able to naturalize. And I really want to sort of underscore this, and I do this in the book, like every almost non-white immigrant um, community that, that's come to this country has had a similar experience. And so what's really interesting is that during this period of immigration in the United States, um, immigration that's coming from the Pacific, people are primarily setting, settling on the West Coast, you're getting an immigration group that's increasingly more and more diverse and starting to increasingly fracture the American concept of whiteness. All of a sudden you have these people who, you know, for all intents and purposes should be American. They, you know, are hard workers. They believe in the opportunity that this country has. They give back to their communities. What you're seeing here is a photo of Bucket Singh Tind. He was the first South, South Asian American to serve in the United States military. So literally willing to put his life on the line for a country that was his adopted home. And yet this made the United States government nervous. So for a period of 10 years, they were monitoring these cases and trying to find ways to basically stop this very disturbing trend of people who, they, who the government believed should not have become citizens, um, to stop them or their future like you know, descendants or future immigrants from becoming citizens as well. And so 10 years after the Majumdar case in 1923, Bhagat Singh Tin's case got sent to the Supreme Court by order of the INS. And they not only denied his petition of, of citizenship, but they also rescinded the citizenship of South Asian Americans living at that time. And so that was, I think, another very shocking thing that I had learned. Can you imagine today, um, thousands of people sort of living and all of a sudden waking up one day and finding out that they're no longer citizens? That would be egregious, it would be unheard of today. And I think in general, when we think about sort of the larger sort of like discourse here around Asian American history and the civil right or the attacks on civil rights of Asian Americans, so much of this is like grossly underreported or, you know, not really talked about. But what happened was a Supreme Court justice in George Sutherland, he, and this is a direct quote, he said that South Asian citizenship was a loophole that these people had come in and they'd been able to game the system and become citizens in a way that was not the actual intent of the founding fathers in 1790. And so Bhagat Singh Tind here, he, you know, was, he never be, was able to become a citizen. And then people like him who you know, had families, had businesses, um, they all lost their citizenship. And so what did that mean, right? So the one thing that I wanted to do in this book was really kind of humanize and like sort of bring to bring context to these people. One of the things that I really love about, about history in general is that it's one of those things that like really connects us to people in our pasts who are just like us, right? They all had hopes, they had dreams, they had, you know, day jobs that made them, you know, nervous or that gave them anxiety, but they had families that they were always really excited to come home to. And so what you're looking at here is a photo of a woman named Kala Bagai. 
she was one of the few um, women I was able to find in my research. She was one of the first women to immigrate to the United States. It was very rare for families from South Asia to come. It was even rarer for women to come on their own. So Kala the guy had immigrated to um, to the US in 1905. She had moved here with her husband and their three sons. One of their sons is pictured here. There's a really funny um, San Francisco call article, newspaper article that marked her arrival because she came in a very beautiful sari and a diamond, the diamond ring on her nose. And so it created a, a bit of like a hoopla at the time. So she was a local celebrity. Um, but when she came here, she immediately, you know, became a single woman, a single mother rather. On the right-hand side, you see a newspaper excerpt from her husband who committed suicide after he lost citizenship. Again, at the time, you had to be an American citizen in order to own property, in order to run businesses, in order to be able to have wealth that could be put into a bank account. And so when the U.S. government rescinded citizenship for these people, they also essentially let them not just stateless, but bankrupt. So for years, whatever work they had put in to you know, build a better life for themselves, it was lost seemingly overnight. Um, Vashnadas's Bagai's um, suicide rattled the time. So it, it, it's an interesting look for anyone who's interested in like the history of newspapers, but it was quite rare for things to go viral, so to speak. Um, but his suicide note, which is really heart-wrenching, and I talk about in the book just how he was able to so succinctly articulate the pain it feels for someone to, you know, fall in love with an adopted country, give everything they can to make a home in that country, for that country to just betray them and take it away. I mean, it's really heart-wrenching. And so his letter was sort of the first thing that kind of started creating the, you know, the winds of change in this era. And Kala Bagai and her son would go on to be one of the pioneers of a very you know, fledgling South Asian American civil rights movement. Um, I wanted to include Kala Bagai in tonight's, in tonight's um, presentation because I think she's one of the few sort of instances that we have in the South Asian American community of like a very strong female figure in American history who you know, came here without speaking English, she had gone to, she'd been educated in like finishing schools in India, but she went on to becoming an investor here in the United States and investing. Today we have Robinhood and apps like that, but it was quite, it was much harder in the early 1900s to invest in companies. She built a lot of wealth actually investing in oil and gas and, you know, natural resource companies based out of California. She raised three sons. The son that she's pictured here, his name is Ram Bagai, and he actually became president of the Hollywood National Foreign Press Association. They host the Golden Globes, if anyone is familiar. And so she really is, I think, it's such an example of like strength, um, especially like female strength at a time where, you know, not only was it hard to be a person of color, but it was extremely hard to be a woman of color. After 1923, basically, you know, it was folks like Kala Bagai and a couple others who I talk about in the book, one of whom is named J.J. Singh, who really took it upon themselves over the course of decades to really try to get that 1790 act um, repealed. And it took many years. It wouldn't be until 1952 where J.J. Singh, again, another figure of American history that I discovered, who was a lobbyist, an activist, who was actually a mercantile tradesman um, by day from India. So he would import silks and other brocades and sell them 
here in New York City, actually, on East 46th Street, which is only three blocks away from here. And he had, you know, accrued, a, you know, some, some wealth for himself. He had, you know, he was a figure in, the, in New York City's social scene. I like to picture him going to parties and, and, you know, rubbing shoulders with some of, like, the celebrities of the time. Catherine Hepburn, actually, um, has mentioned him in her diaries, and that was a really fun thing to discover in my research. Um, but really, it was J.J. Singh that, through his activism and lobbying, was able to get the support of senators and representatives in the U.S. Congress to actually repeal um, that act, the 1790 Act of 1952, and it was replaced by the Loose Seller Act. And it's a happy story, but I do want to um, underscore that again. Like this was like there was in the in like in the way that the, these laws were being challenged, there really wasn't a uniform, I think like Asian American civil rights movement here. The community was very fractured. It was really hard for these people to organize. And so what you'll see from the period of 1950 up until the 1960s really, when you have like modern immigration law starting to be more codified, you'll see that these types of acts, the Loose Seller Act is only one example, but these acts coming into place that actually gave the right to citizenship two different immigrant, immigrant, immigrant groups. So in 1952, we see that South Asian Americans were granted citizenship, as well as Filipino Americans were granted citizenship. And they were also ultimately then a legally protected group of people. So folks like Kala Bagai, Majumdar, Bhagat Singh Tind, um, they were all actually able to get their wealth reinstated. They were able to get their citizenship reinstated. Um, and they went on to lead, like I would say, normal American lives, um, but still very much figures in their community. If you go to Berkeley today, you'll see Kala Bagai Way, um, named after her. She, she ultimately settled in Berkeley, California. And so in discovering this history, it was again, I think a very you know, rich history, way richer than I would have let on, a very complicated history, a very, you know, I think like a history that really shows, I think the tension and the struggle we've had in this country around being inclusive and a nation of immigrants, but also I think confronting a lot of prejudices we have around race and a lot of, I think, fictions we have about certain types of people and how they might be different than other types of people. But more importantly for me, I was actually able to discover that there actually have been a lot of people in American history who look like me. And I'm really excited for this to be out there because it's my hope that you know, other people who you know, feel underrepresented or not represented in our country's history, my, my message is that you, know, you probably are represented and it probably just hasn't been told yet. Um, so yeah, and so I, I think ultimately it's a happy ending. I was able to discover and I think hopefully be able to spread the word of this you know, very important piece of civil rights history in our country. But also for me, it was just very gratifying, I think, to see that, you know, I do belong here. People like me have always actually belonged here. We've always been here um, and we're here to stay. So for context to people at home and here, um, it took me seven years to work on this book. Um, I'll, I'll admit I'm not the most efficient writer or the fastest writer, but a significant part of that time was actually in that research process. I think when you're doing research like this, it's, it's hard because there really aren't too many, you know, secondary source materials that you can kind of use as a um, lifeboat almost, or to, as a guide to your research. There's, there are no textbooks really. 
So basically what I would do is as soon as I would sort of find a person who could be a potential character or, or who, you know, was someone who was South Asian in the United States in the time period that I was interested in. So basically late 1800s to like the early 1960s, I just did whatever I could to like find anything I could about those people. And so what that meant was finding any descendants or relatives who were living who could help with, um, with you know, just giving more color or texture. So in the case of JJ Singh, his um, grandchild, his granddaughter, actually, she just, I think, like left um, the office of vice president today or yesterday, but her name is Sabrina Singh, and she was, um, she's worked in the office of the vice president. And so figuring out, like, you know, who was who, and if they had any sort of resources, um, going, doing some primary source um, research and archives that are both online and in, like, institutions. So every newspaper article that's been written between 1760 to the modern day has been preserved and is online on the Library of Congress. So I've literally just put like last names in a search bar and like Mujumdar is a hard last name to spell. So I'd also put like mis like misspellings of it. And that would sort of give me the um, sort of like, like the seeds almost of like different articles and stuff. And using those articles, I would then piece together um, the reporting. And then going to the actual, you know, institutions themselves, the three biggest, you know, institutions that I would visit was the Library of Congress in DC, the Berkeley Research Library, um, called, or rather the Bancroft Research Library at Berkeley, and then the Research Library at Stanford. And what was interesting is that you literally had to sort of cast the widest net or had to cast the widest net to go through all these documents and just see like, names of like people and then like literally take a photo and put that in a hard drive and then go home and then spend the evenings like reading all those photographs um, because these things aren't organized in a way. So to speak specifically of JJ Singh and Catherine Hepburn, um, I mentioned that JJ Singh was a bit of a society um, man. And so the New Yorker actually mentioned him in an article written in the late 40s about a party that had happened here in Manhattan. Catherine Hepburn had attended and I was like, wait a second, maybe like I should just go and see if she has anything in her archives. And obviously Catherine Hepburn is someone who is like very well documented and a lot of her, like all the, all the resources we have about her are like well archived. And so I was able to find through that a connection to um, JJ Singh. You know, one thing I actually really struggled with in the book was trying to get a concrete number of how many South Asians there were in the United States. I have a chapter in the book where I go through my discovery of census records. And, you know, race has actually been a question on the United States. Race is one of the only questions on the United States census, sorry, that has actually been on, on the questionnaire from day one. And I think it kind of shows just how important race is um, in how we view our society and our population. Um, but if you look at the time, if you look at the, um, census over this time period, they ask basically if you are Hindu or if you're white or if you are, you know, and they had several different categories actually for black Americans. And it was really his struggle to figure out how many people were actually South Asian because if your skin was light enough, you were able to pass. I did find a bunch of uh, several Supreme Court cases that cited people who were, um, today I think we would consider them and apologies if I'm not, if, if I speak ignorant, ignorant, ignorantly here, from the Farsi community of India. 
So these are people who immigrated from, I guess, modern day Persia or Iran and like settled in India and then from India had moved to the United States where they were, you know, technically considered South Asian or by our standard South Asian, but, you know, the color of their skin was quite light. And so there, there were, their cases had been cited by some scholars of the time in the early 1900s as a reason for why um, whiteness, or rather why South Asians like, could be citizens. But if anything, it kind of just showed that how, you know, whiteness was something that had to really be protected, especially if, you know, there were people who were phenotypically white or who could pass as white, but who like legally weren't gonna be white. So short answer is like, yes, passing did happen. It's hard to, I think, really understand how much of it happened, but it also kind of underscored the fear that many like, I think like white Americans had who were in government about this idea that like whiteness could be like infiltrated or like fractured. We do know that South Asian American immigration had, had started to happen as early as I think the late 1800s. And we, and from what I've seen in my research that there's, you know, two classes of people. The first I think were, you know, migrant workers or laborers who were being sent from, you know, at the time South Asia was, was still part of the British Raj. So they would be sent from, you know, South Asia, modern day South Asia to Canada, and then from Canada come down to, through, you know, come down the West Coast into the United States. Similarly, you had folks, or you had sailors who were again, flying under the British flag, leaving South Asia, flying to, or sorry, not flying, sailing to Europe, and then from Europe coming to the United States along the East Coast. That group is definitely a much smaller group than the former group. And when you think about then the reasons why sort of immigration was happening, that a lot of, I think, in the, in the, the region of like Punjab in India, where you have a lot of, um, of these immigrants coming from, you just had a lot of, I think, like domestic issues. You also had a lot of, I think, separatism. So folks who were, you know, trying to be freedom fighters or trying to get resources for Indian independence. And so they would also come. People who had that type of like leaning were more likely if and, and, and who wanted to leave India or had the means were then more likely to go to North America and within North America, the United States versus Canada than they were London, which is where I think definitely more affluent immigrants from who are South Asian would go to because of that, that you know, the colonial history that was shared. And then when we look at sort of the people like Majumdar, like Tins, they all seem to be relatively, I think, a little like more well-to-do. They, they weren't laborers. They weren't, you know, working in, you know, the lumber mills, which was a really big source of um, work for many South Asian Americans. Their families were of money, so they had means, which is why they came here to start more businesses. Um, but it was definitely, I think, my under my understanding now is that because they were more separatist leaning from the British Raj, if they wanted to leave India or modern day India they would come to the United States versus a place that was still under colonial um, influence. I am very much in the book, so <laughs> apologies in advance. Um, and so first I just wanna say like huge shout out, I think to being a Bangladeshi American like librarian. I think that when I was talking earlier about just how hard it was to do the research, like I think when you, you need representation, not just in like, I think our understanding of history, but in how historiography or how our, you know, nation's materials are archived and you know collected. And that really does start, I think, at the ground level, which is like in our country's libraries. So, you know, love seeing more representation in, in our libraries. So the book I think had the book has sort of 
two layers to it. The first is like my personal experience of why this was so important to me. Honestly, I didn't, I didn't start out the research thinking that this was going to be a history or a story about citizenship. I was just trying to find anyone who looked like me. It turned out that the people who looked like me were facing really deep issues that were questioning their citizenship. Um, growing up, and if you know anyone here has, has immigrated or have had parents or loved ones that have immigrated, I think it's a very, I think, like universal experience here where like if you have the privilege to come and the privilege to be able to naturalize, it really is like a cultural moment here. Like I learned, I, I have such visceral memories of, you know, growing up in Queens where we would, you know, take the day off or a friend would take the day off from school if their parent was naturalizing and taking the oath, you know, at the Jacob Javits Center here in Manhattan, like it was very much like a moment of like excitement. And so it was something I very much took for granted that, you know, if you came here and you worked hard, you'd be able to be a citizen. And the fact that, you know, not only did I discover that South Asian Americans couldn't become citizens, couldn't become citizens, um, but it was something that really felt personal. Like if my grandparents had come here, um, for context, my dad was born in um, 52, not to, not to reveal his age or anything. Um, he, like his father wouldn't have been able to be a citizen here. And so I think citizenship is something that I was taking really, like, you know, for granted that it was such an ingrained thing into, into like what made us American. And so to see that like that had been denied to people who looked like me, it just very naturally then became a story about citizenship. Even like, I struggled a lot actually when even using the word South Asian American, because even that's like a homogenizing word. Like the, the groups that I had sort of met were, or not met, but like had found in my research and, and in some cases like met people today who would be part of those groups are quite diverse. And I think are really reflective of just sort of the diversity of people that there that are in like the South Asian subcontinent. So Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, um, all the different ethnic groups within those countries. Um, and I'll say what I found was that along sort of like the, again, a lot of immigration seems to have started, you know, from Canada coming down and then later directly into the United States. What I would see were communities that were, you know, Punjabi communities. So Punjab is a state in the United, in, in India that's in like the north um, west sort of corner of the region and borders Pakistan. There were a lot of Punjabi laborers working in lumber mills in Oregon. I have a chapter in the book called Hindu Alley, Hindu spelled H-I-N-D-O-O, -O, which just kind of shows, I think, like, like the, how, you know, new and foreign these people were, um, who, these people basically lived and worked in Oregon, cutting down trees, building lumber that would then be used to build buildings in San Francisco, in Portland, in Seattle. Um, there was a joke that, like, the great fire of Seattle or Seattle would often have like many fires and it was rebuilt by the work of these South Asian laborers. Um, and so you had communities like that. You had communities that were, you know, again, Majumdar's world was like a little bit more affluent. So he was someone who was trying to, you know, lecture about Eastern spirituality. And so he was sort of in a society that was a little bit more, um, a little bit more well-to-do people like him would were, were less sort of like I think isolated from I think normal or not normal but like more mainstream society at the time and then obviously there were families like Kala Bagai who were in the were rare because there were less families most people who immigrated were um were you know single men 
And so you had families that were able to raise children. And so that was, it was really cool to see some records of like children living here. And I can, and it's something that we really imagine just how, you know, special, but also difficult that experience might've been for them. And I think the interesting thing that I'll also sort of say about the diversity of this community is like, like I said, a lot of these immigrants were single men. And so what did you do after you, you know, came here and you made some money and it was time to settle down? You would get married. And so today, if you go to many communities, especially in Southern California, you'll see a lot of really rich um, intercultural communities between, you know, South Asians and, and Mexicans um, or South Asians um, and, you know, others and other and other minority groups. And so there's a, if anyone is ever in Indio, California, there's a great restaurant that's a hybrid um, hybrid of like South of like South Asian foods or what we consider South Asian foods today, and some really great Mexican cuisines. And the and it's run by a family whose great grandparents, the grandfather was from South Asia, the great grandmother was um, from modern day Mexico, and they had met here and got married. And so you have a lot of you know rich sort of like culture, new cultures that kind of like come out of it. So definitely a very diverse group. Um, and I also just want to caveat that, like, I was only able to do as much as I was able to do. There's so much more out there, I think. So I really hope that, like, if anyone does read the book, you're able to kind of almost like trace the path that I had taken and you might even come up with things that I had missed. Great question. Honestly, I really struggled and trying to not, trying to kind of show causation or try to have like an arc that had, like, I, I've, I learned a lot about doing history in this process. Um, and it's really hard, I think, to like authoritatively say for any given reason, like why something had happened. But I'll try to attempt, and what I do in the book is kind of show, I think, just more naturally, I think, how American sympathy towards South Asian Americans had increased to a point where it made a lot of sense, or, or they were their stories were one that was able to, I think, create enough empathy that people in power were able to, I think, actually look more critically at the 1790 Act. And so I think the two things that I would sort of call as like the drivers there, definitely World War II. And so during World War II, the um, British army was, was composed primarily actually of South Asian American, or South Asian rather, um, soldiers who were based on like out of India rather, right? And so, this is something that is on my mental to-do list to look into and maybe even write more about, but the war that was fought on Asian soil during World War II was very much, I think, a war where you had South Asians defending their crown and they actually were the largest civilian army. I believe it was 2 million soldiers. And many of them had fought on the grounds that they would be able, that India, would be able to get its freedom after World War II. When that didn't happen, it created a lot of discontent, but it also, I think, is what got, I think, the idea of like South Asians as a group of people who were worthy or like, I don't wanna use the word worthy because they should have always been worthy, but a group of people that were you know, on the radar of the American government. So FDR actually wrote a letter um, that was published in newspapers talking about how if we can see how South Asians in India were, how can we not, you know, give them the citizenship here? There was also, I think, as the, as like the promise of, you know, decolonization started happening, 
there was a bit of a self-serving nature to the American government's decision to revisit this, which was that they didn't want to offend India if India emerged as a, tra a potential trading partner by denying um, their immigrants citizenship, because implicitly what you're saying is that if someone can't be a citizen, they are less than or like not worthy of. And then plus, I think, you know, it's the people like Kala the guy who just, I think, despite the struggles that they had, despite the discrimination and the prejudice, they kind of like carried on and they lived their lives and they raised their kids. And they, I think, like just normalized what we take for granted today, which is a, a very you know, diverse racial body of Americans who can be American. I, in the book, I, I show a very funny newspaper clipping where Kala the guy's son, Ram, is interviewed after he became um, head of the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. And the interviewer in the article literally writes, this guy looks just like you and I. He dresses just like you and I. He talks like you and I. He uses slang, slang like swell and like shucks. And then there's a photo of, you know, obviously a very brown man in, like a, in a suit. But it just kind of shows, I think, how I think it was a combination of like just these people living their lives and like refusing kind of to be silenced, like making them making themselves visible. Plus, some very important I think, like geopolitical changes that ultimately led to that moment where JJ Singh would have been most successful in trying to repeal the law. So I think it's really hard to ever just show causation. I think it was like several things happening at the right time that ultimately, um, you know, got that law repealed. Well, first of all, I think my family is just like very proud, <laughs> and so. It's been very, you know, I think I'm very proud of myself. It was hard. I think one of the things that I think really kind of stood out to me almost was how easy, not easy, but how accessible a lot of this research is. And so I think what's been, I think the reaction has been one where people, you know, are certainly, I think, enjoying this history and I think enjoy, and I think are able to relate to this idea that like, History as a, you know, history always, there's a reason why we study history. It's really, I think, to see ourselves in our country. And so I think that's been denied for so many people who look like me, who've gone to the same school system that I've came, I came up through New York City public schools. And so I think like the, the, the reaction has been really positive, I think very heartwarming in that sense. I think there's also been a lot of just like energy around this topic in this area. Like I said, this is like, I, like there's so many great books that came before mine. So like, for example, like Vikas um, Bajaj's like um, Bengali Harlem was a really huge influence on me. And so my hope is that there's more books like this that come, that come through and like more people get inspired to do this research, but also like, it's a good book. Like it's a good story. Like not to, I think like brag about it, but I think like there really is, I think, you know, something about a group of people who fought really hard despite losing what they had and were able to come out on the top at the end. That is something that I think anyone can really relate to regardless of where you're from. And I think it's a very, you know, optimistic story too. I think it kind of just helps explain like how as a country we are, you know, this is what we need to understand if we're gonna truly be an inclusive society where everyone has an equal place. Um, so yeah, I think, the, I think it's been good. Great tactical question. So also if anyone is, is, if anyone wants to do this type of research and like, as you know, as like a, you know, as a career or as, you know, on the side, like I had done, which I don't know if I would recommend, like happy to really like offline talk through like all like the tips and tricks that I've come across in doing this. Um, a lot of this research was self-funded. So after I 
finished my master's, I did receive a grant. I think it was like $1,500 to do um, the research. Um, spoiler alert, that wasn't enough. Um, I also had, you know, from Rutgers received half of an advance. Um, that was, I think, really, it was a blessing because I think it's hard, I think, in like just the, like the publishing industry today to like, you know, actually properly fund this research. I had to make a lot of, I think, tough choices about my own career. Like working at ABC was like my dream job, but like financially, it wasn't going to support like the type of research I had to do. So to answer your question about the costs, the actual, I think, like resources themselves were um, free or are free. Like anyone can go to the Library of Congress. All you have to do is apply for a library card. It's very cool. You get to keep it for life. Um, it's one of my favorite library cards that I have. You go to a research institution. All you have to do is give them notice and like talk and work with a, an onsite librarian who will help you. But it's all free. The cost isn't getting there. And really the cost I think is in being able to shape your life such that you're able to, you know, maintain whatever basic needs you have, whatever those needs are, um, while at the same time giving yourself the time to, you know, take off from work to like go on a trip. And so much of this is like really hard to plan for, right? Cause it's, I'd have people who would, you know, want to talk to me on one day and then not want to talk to me and then take six or seven months to like actually get them to talk. Or I would, you know, go to Bancroft um, in Berkeley and think I had found everything and then found another box somewhere or was told of another box, I had to go back. So you really had to, I think, I really had to be, be very like judicious in how I was budgeting and planning and ensuring that all of that was honestly self-funded. Um, it can be expensive between flights and, and all that, especially because so much of the research was on the West Coast and I was based here um, in New York. Thank you very much, Katika, for a wonderful presentation. Uh, you can purchase the hardcover copy or ebook of Here to Stay from the Rutgers University Press website for $27.95, as well as all the other famous bookstores, online bookstores that she mentioned earlier. And uh, I'm going to share the email addresses of all the folks uh, who are registered here and also attended the online portion. And you can send them the author code for, for the discount. Uh, in addition to uh, her novel, there's also other resources available. Uh, the South Asian American Digital Archive, SADA, is a very uh, important one. Uh, they recently put out an intro to uh, South Asian American history as well. So buy the two together. Uh, we look forward to future talks, uh, especially from the librarian that we heard from. Uh, with that, have a wonderful weekend. And uh, remember to be upstander if you see a fellow person in need. Good night, everybody. Thank you for coming.